Hello, everyone. Uh, let me welcome you uh, to the Forum 2000 online debate. My name is Katarzyna Procházková, and I'm going to interview Madame Dedi Kirsten Tatlow, Senior Fellow at the German Council on Foreign Relations and also a researcher at Project Synopsis. Dedi is the author of the book uh, Beyond Espionage, China Quest for Foreign Technology, that was published last year, and we are going to talk about uh, this subject today. China's rise as a neo-totalitarian technological superpower made possible through access to science and technology created by countries, it now challenged for global leadership, like the United States and uh, European countries as well. So did it, my first question is, how is the PRC or a more China Communist Party working on achieving world technology dominance? Could you describe the techniques that they are using and maybe explain us to us why are these technology acquisitions activities so dangerous? Right, well, thank you very much, Katerina. I'm very happy to be here. So basically the Chinese Communist Party seeks technology from around the world in the in de developed industrial countries, including Japan and South Korea um, and other places, for example, it's not just the West of Europe and America, but um, anywhere it can find them. The goal is to make China powerful and strong, which includes building a very strong economy, which then leads to military capability. The CCP is very clear that you need that technological capability to fight future wars, for example. Um, and a lot of this is done through its policy of what's called military civil fusion, where the economy and the purposes of technology are fused into economy and to military and civilian use. So how it does this? Well, it's, it's really always done this. And that's the fascinating thing about this technology transfer issue. Um, Essentially, this is a very old quest on the part of China. China fell behind badly technologically approximately 100 years ago plus and was very conscious of that fact that it made it weak. So it has tried to catch up. And since the communists came to power in 1949, there has been a very detailed, um, well-worked out, granular um, wide and deep program of identifying what technology the state and the party want for China um, to help it grow big, strong and powerful and to dominate the world, absolutely, um, and to how to get hold of it. So this then happens through a very wide range of people, ministries, party departments, United Front organizations which work for the Communist Party and also, often students who go overseas, whether they are aware of exactly what they're doing or not, and also overseas professional organizations, for example, of Chinese engineers who go somewhere to study engineering, they perhaps stay in their place and send information back. Again, I think it's very important that while this is a deliberate plan on the part of the party state, many of the individuals involved in it who are from China may not really be completely aware of what they're doing. So this isn't about necessarily making personal blame or personally blaming individuals, but it's about understanding the structures of what's happening as we rapidly lose technology to China and have done for decades now. You are just describing incredible apparatus, ministries, organizations, a united front. Could you tell me why does the world, we are talking now maybe more about Europe, know so little about these Chinese activities? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's a combination of factors. First of all, um, the world 
knows relatively little about China overall. We don't understand China. Let's face it, very few people outside of China can speak Chinese or can read Chinese. Now think for a moment what that would mean if nobody in the world could read or understand English. Well, it would mean that English-speaking countries were probably not very well understood. So that's just a very basic problem there. And for sure, Chinese is an extremely difficult language to learn. Um, there is a joke attributed to a former premier, Zhou Enlai, who said that in Chinese, the first level of encryption in China is the Chinese language. It's hard. So that's one factor. Another factor is this relationship of power and hierarchy, which I think it's fair to say has existed between, for example, the United States and Europe and China for a long time. And this goes back for historical reasons that um, uh, the West, so-called, was more developed than China. Um, and so there was a certain attitude that it didn't really matter what China was doing, because what could they change? How could they change us anyway? What could they do to us anyway? Well, that balance of power is really shifting very fast now. So I think that's, uh, you know, the key reason why it's incredibly important to get to grips with this subject. Mm -hmm. um, we are talking about the world, about Europe, but did it let me talk a bit about the Germany, where you are now based? It's one of the most important partners in the high-tech business, know-how exchanges for, for China. Um, And uh, German Chancellor uh, Angela Merkel once sent Wandel, the famous quote, Wandel durch Handel, let's change the China uh, through trade. Uh, but we can see that this trading relationship is, is changing us more than China, leading us to compromise, forget about human rights, values, etc. Are German business people or politicians aware of this, I would say, unlucky development? <laughs> I think by and large, they are not. I think by and large, they don't understand what's going on for the reasons that we just talked about before in the previous question. To be fair, Wandel durch Handel, so change through trade, uh, is a sort of a translation of a concept, if you like, that I think came from English. And it was very much the United States that kicked off this process back in uh, the 1970s with Henry Kissinger. And the belief that First of all, the American system was superior and democracy would win the day, um, which is a normative universalist belief. Um, and secondly, that that it could, in fact, um, again, well, I suppose essentially that that, that, that democracy was normative and, and then that, that it would win the day and that China would change once it touched capitalism. Well, I think that all this just shows that um, that the issue here isn't actually economics in a large extent. It's actually about values or if you want to say politics, and this whole idea of it's the economy, stupid, you know, that came out of America um, isn't actually the point. It's about, it's the values, you know, stupid, as Bill Clinton's, um, one of his top officials said. But to get back to um, the Germany issue, I mean, Germany in a way followed the lead of the rest of the world, and it was a very good fit with China. Germany had this very advanced manufacturing economy. It still has a pretty advanced manufacturing economy. China didn't have that. Germany has a very long tradition of sort of the Orientalist sentimentality, if you like, towards China. Many philosophers and thinkers in Germany um, really were very impressed with China, you know, and that, that's something that goes back hundreds of years. And I think it sits very deep in the psyche. Um, more contemporarily, at this point, I think we have to talk about whether or not a country like Germany, not just Germany, but also Germany, is in, in effect in some ways in a state of capture, whether we've got, we're going through a process of elite capture by the CCP in business, in industry, 
in politics um, and in other areas. And um, whether, you know, um, elite capture precedes state capture, the next step is state capture. And basically, attitudes have been shaped and molded so far that, um, that Germany will simply cooperate. And at the highest levels, they simply don't see or don't want to see the risks to their own democracy. Thank you, Didi. Um, I think uh, here in Czech Republic, we can see something similar, especially when you are mentioning elite capture. Um, the Chinese are not using the, the Hayek, but they are also using different channels um, how to get the information, how to infiltrate into the system. Uh, you are also a former journalist that I forgot to say. And um, these days, finally, media are getting aware of that situation that PRC is also influencing the media. Your, your recent article for the website The Wire China, that was titled uh, Who's News, describes uh, the, the Chinese infiltration into the media through social networks and media apps. Could you maybe tell us more about it and maybe compare it? How dangerous is this? Yes, yeah, so I think it's incredibly important to the CCP to shape the environment outside of China so that um, it removes what it regards as threats to the Chinese system at home. And this is primarily ideological threats. It doesn't want this sort of idea, this color revolution business, very frightening for Beijing. Um, it doesn't want people to push for um, free speech or democracy issues like that. Um, it's very clearly against that. It's even against the idea of sort of constitutionalism, if you like. Um, so how can it do that? Well, it's got this system of what it calls borrowed boats. And this has been talked and written about by other people, very interestingly. So essentially, it would take a, a media in Czech Republic, in Germany, in the United States, and perhaps make an insert in there or pay for individual articles and try to keep the fact that it's sponsored by uh, a CCP-connected organization or by, for example, Xinhua News Agency writers in that country, um, keep that as small as little known as possible. So that would be one format of borrowing somebody else's boat and going out to sea. Um, another format that I think is growing is through money, through investment, through venture capital funds in China, overseas, and in the case we're looking at in the United States, I think that there's an outreach going on to try to establish social media or news companies um, or simply voices within established ones, which is a little bit the borrowed boat, borrowed boat syndrome again. Um, but when you when you look at the example that I've been looking at, which is an app called Newsbreak, which was founded in the United States in 2016, but really took off in 2019, and is now one of the most um, um, downloaded news apps, apparently, in the United States, according to the figures from Google Play and App Store, then you see how um, the long background of the founders and the investors, which um, connects very closely to apps in China, which are which fit with Communist Party um, goals and speech red lines that cannot cross, that interact with the security uh, system in China, the public security system, and in other very troubling ways, 
but this is now being set up in America. It has been set up in America and it aims to do something very interesting, which is to dominate the local news market in America. Now we all know that local news many places, not just in the United States, is having a lot of trouble often through this problem with Google ads. They're not getting revenue locally and local media outlets are collapsing. It's very worrying, actually. So in a way, it was very clever to identify that as a source, a place that needs to be fixed. I think that's correct. Um, but, you know, we do see and we have yet to see to what extent you know, there is manipulation here, but I think we need to be very watchful just for the growth of these structures inside democratic societies, because very often it's not about what they do in the, in the sense of putting out pro-communist party or pro-Beijing articles, it's about what they don't report about. So if there's some kind of event locally, um, a Tiananmen commemoration, for example, of the massacre in 1989 in, in, in China of democracy um, protesters and anti-corruption protesters, then perhaps that is just isn't going to be highly linked on the page. And very few people might see it unless they know to look for it. And in that way, topics are played down that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want to see becoming dominant overseas. So then it becomes very obvious whose interests are being portrayed through these kinds of outlets. And um, we do still need to see exactly what's going on with this particular one. But I would take it just as an example of things to be concerned about due to the long history uh, of the people in Chinese tech with connections with Chinese ministries and governments and um, the, the speech guardians, the censors in China again. Mm -hmm. uh, now you are talking about the structure. You just said that the infiltration is not just in the business that we mentioned in the first question, but also it, it goes through the media, also probably through the academic field. So maybe could you explain us how this how systematic is the CCP propaganda and how do these activities appear or reflect in, in our countries? Yeah, well, um, I will say it is truly complex. And let me just take try to give an example. There are certain voices in a place like Germany that have been involved with China for a long time. This would be German journalists or businessmen or PR people who have a certain standing, who get a lot of benefit from their business and um, media engagement in China. And then, you know, they become known and then, you know, they, they, they propagate this sort of uncritical narrative about China to the point, for example, of saying that in one particular case of claiming that the Tiananmen Square massacre was like an outlier and that this wasn't somehow intrinsic to the way that the party thinks and behaves, when in fact it is part of a very long pattern that we have seen continued with the situation against the Uyghurs um, and, and abuses there. Um, but these voices, when something new is set up in Germany, these voices are often picked to lead the reporting, to lead the the, um, the outreach into Germany, to, to write lots of articles saying, look, you're all being a bit, you know, silly and don't be so anti-China, soi-disant. Uh, of course, no one's being anti-China. We are being critical of the CCP, yes, but that's allowed. And, um, you know, that's a very specific type of reaction. Um, you know, in, in any democratic situation, it's very important behavior, I think. Um, so, so again, it's this thing about a little bit casting blame that, you know, you're too extreme, et cetera. And then these voices get supported and they get invited around and, and they, you know, they, they, they become part of the fabric of a society. They, they spread influence. Um, there are also other ways, for example, the setting up of um, cultural 
associations uh, between Germany and China. If they already set up, then they are, you know, people affiliated with the CCP or perhaps the local embassy and consulate system here in Germany, the, the Chinese one, will then make outreach and offer, oh, would you like this lovely music program, wonderful interaction, you know, Chinese-German uh, friendship through music. Okay, well, that's nice. So people do it. And then step by step, bit by bit, suddenly one day they realize they're signing a contract to uh, spread Belt and Road Initiative, so CCP-friendly projects throughout Germany. And they are, you know, part of a network of 36 organizations operating in Germany with very tight ties to Beijing. And it just, you know, this is this drip, drip system of gaining influence. So that would be another way in which this happens. Now, I mean, I think that the minute people are alert to these types, different types of behavior in the media, in civil society, in academia is another very important one, influence and interference behaviors. The minute people are aware of them, I think they lose a lot of power. The issue is whether, you know, whether people can understand properly what's at work here and be brought to realize that these are in fact things that are quite threatening towards the open society in which, you know, which is what democracies are. They're very open societies and therefore very easy to infiltrate. And that's pretty much what's going on. Um, Lydia, when you are describing this system, this drip drip system, how they are trying to infiltrate, uh, spreading the narratives, um, this is quite uh, developed and uh, very sophisticated uh, method. So, how uh, who is behind the, the whole propaganda apparatus and who is the driver or who is the director of it all is it Xi Jinping or can you maybe describe us the structure a bit so there are lots of different structures that feed into create these problems and of course, of course because you know the communist party is a one party um, so it has many outlets I mean, key would be here, for example, um, the propaganda ministry, of course, has a major role, um, excuse me, the propaganda department of the CPC or the CCP, the Communist Party of China. Um, it's not a ministry, it's a department of the Central Committee, therefore of the Communist Party itself. Um, and it um, covers a lot of other areas, departments and ministries, for example, education. Um, it also interacts really with um, cultural issues, with media, obviously, very heavily. Uh, these are, this is a powerful position within the Communist Party state system. So then we know you will have one um, strong organization like that at the national level in Beijing, for example. And then there will be in every single 30 plus Chinese province or region, um, there are, of course, replicas, you know, going down. And then it's a chain that cascades down to the very bottom of the system um, at the local level, if you like, where um, the Communist Party secretary will be aware of all of these um, um, connections, requests, demands, and these ideological um, orders, um, notices, policies, uh, instructions will then uh, move down from the top to the bottom very quickly as well. It's a system called Tranda, whereby it means transmit and arrive. And that can happen very, very fast throughout the whole country because that's how the power structure works. It's a very effective autocratic power structure that can respond very fast 
to any given situation. So that's one method. I mean, you've then got, of course, the United Front, which has been talked about quite a lot recently. And I think rightly so. It's not the only thing that's important. There are lots of others. For example, the Political Legal Affairs Committee would be very involved in passing around instructions about control and um, and legal judgments in courts and other things to do with public security and also the prison system. Um, and again, it would operate this tranda system where everything just comes down very fast. Um, and the United Front is very interesting, of course, because I think it touches on a concept that we do really need to get far more familiar with outside of China, which is how things can seem to be as they are in our own societies. For example, an organization can seem to be a community organization that does, you know, calligraphy or qigong or lovely, wonderful food or, um, you know, or anything else. But in fact, if you analyze who on the Chinese side is part of this organization, whether it's in China or overseas, you will probably very quickly understand that there are key connections to this so-called United Front or the United Front system, which mean that essentially it's directly or indirectly managed by the Communist Party again. Why? Because the United Front belongs to the Communist Party. The United Front is a um, internal part of the party, which is tasked with interacting with external parts of society. So non-Communist Party members in China, um, overseas Chinese outside of China, and also non-Chinese outside of China. And so this is a very effective system. Um, I, I like to think of it as a little bit, if I may draw this analogy, um, I don't know if you know the stories of Asterix and Obelix, the comics, which were such fun. Um, and essentially when Obelix is sharing a cake with Asterix, he cuts one piece and he, he gives that to Asterix and then takes the whole of the rest for himself. And the whole cake is gone. So to me, a little bit, the small piece is the Communist Party with its 90 million members. The entire rest of the cake is this sort of, you know, politicized United Front system um, where everything else can be directly or indirectly controlled by the party. Thank, thank you very much, yeah. Judy. Um, I hope that finally some Czechs, maybe Czechs politician would get the clue and understand what's going on. Um, let me ask maybe a last question. Uh, you were mentioning the whole system, the infiltration into the media, into the academic uh, sphere, into the business, uh, into the politics. But uh, where do you think that CPC leaders are more successful? In, in which field? Uh, I'm going back to our first question. And what would you see as more dangerous for us, for like Western democratic societies? Right. So I think absolutely the issue of technology transfer um, from the world to China, um, it's not new. And, you know, we may, unless we react pretty fast, we may almost be a little bit too late there, I'm sorry to say, because already so much technology has flowed um, through ways which are legal, illegal, or gray zone, that the phrase in Chinese for getting hold of technology from outside China is by multiple means. Now that was a phrase that was um, agreed on by five ministries, I think back in 2001, if I remember correctly. Um, and therefore it presented a kind of carte blanche for behaviors um, by Chinese institutions and persons also to get technology back to China by any means, by multiple means, if you like. Um, so that's not a new system and we are very late in responding to it. Now, my concern is that such 
depth of relations have already been built up, for example, in institutions and research academies and universities, that unless we are really determined to face this issue, it's going to be hard to change. That's my first concern. Um, I think we absolutely do need to change it. I think we need to act. Um, and if we do act, it won't be too late, but it'll be a close thing. Um, my second concern is, is business. And I think that um, we have a really very large problem in that China has been very successful in reaching into um, open economies where there are free market activities, you know, where free market is the normal way of uh, trading, if you like. Um, and in sort of using those free market structures, the openness of the economies, for example, in Europe, the economy is tremendously open, same in the US, um, maybe even more so in Europe. Um, and taking what it wants, needs in a very targeted way. Um, this is called economic statecraft, it's driven by the state, um, and not offering the same reciprocity back to European countries or other countries. So there's no reciprocity, essentially. Um, China's market is still very controlled, very shut. Um, that's why the recent comprehensive agreement on investment between the EU and China was you know, problematical. I understand that they tried, Europe tried to open up the Chinese market, but nobody's really getting very far with that um, for the very simple reason that China knows it's extremely dangerous for its political control back home. So my real concern is that we've had decades and decades of misreading China, of misunderstanding China, of thinking it would change. You use the phrase Wandel durch Handel, Katharina, it's exactly right. We seem to have this sort of hubris that we thought that, you know, we, we were so attractive that China would choose, that the Communist Party even would choose to become like us. Um, now, why anyone would think that, I really don't quite know, but we did. Um, and again, we need to take action to um, fence out these problem areas. And I think one problem is that China's been so, the Chinese Communist Party has been so good at playing this sort of capitalist game that it does a lot of things that look very similar to what is happening in capitalist democratic societies, but they are not similar because there's something else behind it that makes them much more purposeful and troubling and exploitative, if you like, in, in a different way. Um, so that's, you know, how are we then gonna extricate our own economies for example, in the United States, the influencing that runs very, very deep, the um, presence of Chinese money in America, venture capital funds, for example, runs very, very deep. Um, again, we need to, you know, we need to identify what is safe, what is unsafe. And we need to proceed with this sense of what I call democratic security. So that security, which is democratic in nature, that's safe for the people, you know, in democracies, but it's also democracies that are secure from this sort of exploitation, if you like, from, from malified political systems that, that don't like democracies. Um, you know, democracies are hard to maintain. They're messy, they're troublesome, they're quarrelsome, they're hard to keep going. We put a lot into them, a lot of effort, a lot of goodwill, a lot of energy, a lot of positiveness, I think. Um, and they're incredibly valuable because they deliver a great life um, and are also highly creative. They make the best of human potential, in my opinion. Um, so they're absolutely worth protecting. And um, I think we need to get a bit smarter about how to, how to secure our own democratic systems. So that would be my kind of final, you know, concern hashtag is sort of hashtag democratic security. We need to work on that more. 
Thank you, Lydia. It was perfect ending for our interview. Thank um, you. Thank you for your time and knowledge that you have shared with us. For those who would like to know more, please, uh, you can follow uh, this research on Synopsis or other uh, media or uh, projects. And also you can buy the book that I mentioned, which is called Beyond Espionage. Maybe there will be also the Czech translation soon. So uh, I would like to also thank you, our viewers, for staying with us online. And take care and goodbye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.